HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Diane Stemple, and you're listening to Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm doing my monthly book review show. I'm so pleased to introduce renowned cheese book author Laura Worland to discuss her latest book, Mac and Cheese, Please. Hello, Laura. Hi, Diane. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here with you, here, as it were, anyway, on the radio, because um, I'm such a huge fan of the show, and I listen to the podcast every week, and so it's just great to be be with you. Oh, thank you very much. I'm excited to have you. Um, I just wanted to introduce you for our listeners, in case they don't know, which is probably not true. They probably know of you well. Uh, you've been writing more than a decade of great cheese books, uh, the first being The New American Cheese in 2000, which was a combination of recipes and a survey of many American cheesemakers all over the country. And then the second major cheese book was All American Cheese and Wine in 2003. And those were both, uh, you know, in everybody's library to learn about American cheese and uh, also some wine. So I want to thank you for those excellent books. Oh, my goodness. You're so welcome. (laughs) It was, um, you know, those were both, uh, well, all of my books really are, you know the the phrase "labors of love." It's not even really appropriate because it, it didn't really. They never feel like labor. They mm-hmm. just, but they do feel like love. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but those first two books in particular that you mentioned uh, were certainly so because of. Um, I mean, they were and are, I suppose, to some extent, discoveries for me of uh, you know an entire um, sort of burgeoning industry that all I knew was that I loved cheese and I loved American cheese, but I didn't know much about it, and I really didn't think too many people did either. Mm-hmm. And um, and so those books were sort of the manifestations of my discoveries, but ones that I wanted to, um, you know, other people to be able to discover along with me. Mm-hmm. And the research must have been fascinating and wonderful. I mean, what could no. be better than traveling around the country eating cheese and meeting cheesemakers? <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, it's pretty terrible that somebody had to do it. Uh, well, you know, it was interesting. Actually, the first book, um, I, I, I wrote very shortly after leaving my previous previous profession, which was television news. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of my background in TV news, I was very used to deadlines because, of course, we had you know several deadlines every day in news. And when I got a publisher for The New American Cheese, uh, they, they were so enthusiastic about the idea that they gave me, in the end, after we'd signed the contract and everything, basically I had to write it in about three months. Wow. And, and that was rather insane. So a lot of that particular book was done by phone and asking cheesemakers to send me their cheeses. And, oh, you know, that okay. rather than, I mean, I was able to visit quite a few, but not, mm-hmm. I mean, there were 55 cheesemakers that I profiled in that book, and I wasn't able to get to all of them by any stretch of the imagination. In, in subsequent years, mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. uh, been able to visit many of them, but, um, but not at that time. Oh. Nevertheless, it was. Um, it still was. It was still a fun little journey, even if a, lot, if a lot of it was by phone. And I might add, prior to the real use of the internet, so right. everything I did was was really was by phone and mm-hmm. by you know tasting and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Now I really thought you fooled me because I thought you had traveled around because the you had concentrated on California, Vermont, and Wisconsin. So I figured you were just driving around those states. Not uh, not extensively, no. As mm. I said, I did get to visit some of them, uh, but not all that I wrote about. And okay. I, and that was because, I mean, it would have been nice to be able to write, a, you know, a sort of a you are there kind of chronicle of every um, farm that, that I ended up writing about. But because of the time constraints, and also at that point, um, you know, the, I, I didn't really have the means to do that kind right. of thing. And, uh, and so, um, and, I, and I felt budget. like it wasn't so important. I mean, I sent the photographer around mm-hmm. to many of the farms that I myself did not have the opportunity to visit at that point. Oh, okay. Now, I want to talk about your new book. The The very day I first cracked open your book, Mac and Cheese, to read the intro, I had coincidentally passed by a box of Velveeta in a very unfancy grocery store near my house in Brooklyn. And I had reached out for it. I had touched it. It was, you know, a cardboard box, uh, you know, rectangular. And I, I wanted it. I, it was like a, a primordial <laughs> desire to put it in my cart. But I stopped myself because I have never uh, purchased Velveeta or used it in any way. But then when I opened your book and saw that you were including some Velveeta recipes, I immediately <laughs> regretted it that I hadn't brought some home. Well, I'll have you know that in writing this book, that was the first time I had ever purchased purchased Velveeta, <laughs> and um, you know, and I and I even said, I think I said in the book, I can't remember, I know I thought it that um, that I was quite certain that some of my colleagues in 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 our in our cheese world would disparage me for for that, uh-huh. um, and you know, and <laughs> understandably so, frankly, uh, the reason that those two recipes that that have Velveeta in them are uh, appear in the book is because. One of them is a friend of mine's recipe who um, he brings it to a New Year's Eve party every year. And the first time I tasted it several years ago, I couldn't quit eating it. And then I finally asked him, I said, all right, so what are the cheeses in here? And he said, uh, Velveeta. And I, I said, no. I felt like everything I had learned and done in cheese up to that point was for naught. But, um, but it was so good, and everybody at the party loved it and loved it every year that I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to do that. And then it the other one was a, is a 
It, well, and the other one is a retro, total re- retro recipe. I call it Mad Men Mac and Cheese, mm-hmm. and it's got, you know, it's a riff on the Mad Men series. Mm-hmm. So right. I thought they're not going to use anything but Velveeta. So. Well, I presume they created Velveeta because it, it's good for cooking. Well, actually, um, it was a means of using leftover Swiss cheese scraps, basically. When they would cut the cheese to be a certain size and everything in the mm-hmm. factory, it was um, they, they came up with a way to basically reheat those scraps, use them, mm-hmm. and reheat, they reheated them and added whatever they added to them to um, create a shelf-stable product and one that, um, you know, obviously doesn't have to be refrigerated, at least before it's open. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yes, and it melts, it melts well. But mm-hmm. really, um, what it did back when it was invented was it appealed um, to the American, even, even back then, we as a culture had a real desire for sameness in our food and consistency and reliability and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And Belvita... Uh, really answered that call, and mm-hmm. so, and then during war years, it was easily transported and that kind of thing. Oh, so okay. it was very practical cheese, really. Okay, or non-cheese. Uh huh. <laughs> well, I have a lot of questions about uh, the book. I'm curious about what a different experience it is to do the research and writing the previous two books versus a complete cookbook and on just one topic. Right. How, how well, long does it take? You know, um, actually, it is a little bit. It is a different focus, but in many ways, the single subject book, like this mac and cheese, and my other two, which are grilled cheese books, uh, is are, are much easier mm-hmm. because I don't have to. You know, I know what the basic thing is going to be, and mm-hmm. then it's a, then it's a question of getting creative with that. In this case, fifty ways, and uh, and so it's got its own challenges because sometimes. You know, you think, how many ways can you really make mac and cheese? Right. And um, although I discovered after doing 50 recipes, I could probably write another book on that, too. But mm-hmm. um, but basically, it, it is a different process. And so, whereas in the first couple of books, and also my book, Cheese Essentials, which is, that one is driven by styles of cheese. So the recipes are are meant to sort of bring to the table the kinds of cheeses that I'm writing about in each chapter. Um and and whereas you know those are sort of more I guess I guess a little more traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just um, grilled cheese and mac and cheese are really more about um, figuring out how to how to divide you know the chapters. Should it uh-huh. be based on cheeses or should it be based on on how the how the recipe is made? If it's a stovetop recipe versus an oven baked one, mm-hmm. or the way I did it was based on. Um, things like you know all vegetables or mm-hmm. all cheese or meat and mm-hmm. um, you know the decadent kind of a, a chapter that and a, and a lower fat right. chapter and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Now, do you test your own recipes, or does the publisher and does the publisher then retest? What's the procedure? No, actually, uh, for the last for my last three books, I hired a recipe tester. Mm-hmm. There is there is such a person in the world, or more than one, uh, and. Um, and I, she and I did not cook side by side. In fact, she lives in North Carolina and I live in California. But um, but she is a very very experienced cook and and also an excellent writer. So uh, so what I did was I would do the recipes and then if I had questions or even if I didn't, I sent them to her and then I had a form that I had her fill out, mm-hmm. including you know did you like it? Did you sort of like it? Did you not like it? Mm-hmm. And 
so, or and if not, why? You know, everything from kind of the aesthetic to the practical, you know, do the recipe work kind mm-hmm. of thing. Right. And, and so, because I, I don't think it's ever good for a recipe writer to, to test their own recipes, although I know many people might disagree with me that write their own recipes, but I don't think it's a good idea. Okay. Well, have you tasted the recipes? Have I tasted them? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I've created and, them. Oh, okay. So you... you you devise them and taste them, and then she tests them, the, the recipe right. tester. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. no, I come up with both of the recipes. Okay. I mean, sometimes I'll ask a chef friend of mine or somebody mm-hmm. or this, this guy, Kevin, who, right. who, who's Velveeta recipe. I'll ask, you know, for that, but mostly mm-hmm. I create them. Now, this is a question. I, you're my first total cookbook interview, so I, you know, have a lot of cookbook questions. How <laughs> do you create a recipe and call it your own? Do you have to check, you know... Maybe you got it 20 years ago from a magazine and then, you know, tweaked it. How do you uh, make sure it's your own? Well, you know, there's there, a lot of people say that there's no such thing as an original recipe. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably true, although I think all of us who write recipes would like to think that our recipes are indeed unique. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the fact is that... I mean, everybody's process, everybody who writes cookbooks, uh, their process is different. Mm-hmm. Mine is that I actually choose not to look at other people's recipes. I think that sometimes that probably hurts me. I could perhaps learn from them. But I don't want to be influenced by anything but my own creative thoughts. And mm-hmm. for me, recipe uh, creation is is a real exercise in creativity. It's probably, for me, it's in some ways the most creative thing that that I do because mm-hmm. I don't draw. I can't, I, I can't even do a stick man, you know. Mm-hmm. So I like. I really love creating recipes, and so I'm not really influenced by by recipes from others. But obviously, um, you know, I eat, and um, mm-hmm. and and I'm influenced by chefs and right. and all kinds of combinations of foods that you know the chefs put on the plate that you think, well, gee, you know, I really like butternut squash ravioli mm-hmm. with sage butter and mm-hmm. you know parmesan. So um, how can so I, can I incorporate that into a mac and cheese recipe? Exactly, mm-hmm. and I did do that. Mm-hmm. I riffed on that in my own way, and you know, so I mean, I didn't use anybody's recipe, but certainly I'm inspired by things right. that I eat and see, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, in your um, previous life, before you were a cheese writer, did you just were you the kind of cook that goes into the kitchen and cooks without a recipe? Not really. I was an avid cook, but I mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, I'm kind of, you know, I'm I'm kind of a rule follower. Okay, so you will <laughs> follow life. other recipes in other other areas. Uh, yes, uh, definitely, mm-hmm. and, um, and yeah, and only now do I am I do I buck I, I sort of buck that trend. I, I'm really not interested in following recipes. I like to use them now as guidelines. But mm-hmm. back then, no, I was a I was a recipe follower, which which served me well in terms of being a recipe writer. I'll tell you. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I have another question. Um, you don't dictate in the recipes, except for Velveeta and a few truffle cheeses and, a, you know, a few recipes. You don't dictate what brand type of cheese. You just say cheddar or fontina or Parmesan. Um, what price do you think people will use for mac and cheese? And I guess sort of what price will regular people use and what price will cheese fanatics that might be listening to the show use? Right. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I kept the recipes generic um, intentionally because I felt like a mac and cheese book was meant to be for everyone. It was for the mm-hmm. people listening to this show, just as it is for the people, you know, who might not, who for whom cheese is essentially a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so, 
you know, and, and, and even among cheese people, I think there's a philosophical divide about whether you cook with expensive cheeses or don't you? Yeah. And, you know, and then, and so, and then, then you, if you drill down further, then you think, well, what kind of recipes are you talking about? It's sort of like olive oil. Do you use the best olive oil to cook with, or do you use it as a finishing oil? Right. And, and the same, I would say, is true for, for cheese. You know, some of my, 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 my more serious books, uh, in there I call for very specific cheeses, and that's because I'm trying to educate people about those cheeses. But grilled cheese and mac and cheese, they're meant to be just, you know, sort of equal opportunity foods for everybody. And I don't want them, I did not want any of these books to seem kind of snobbish or elitist or cheesist, you know. Right, right. Um, And so I can't really answer your question. I mean, I just think that whatever works or whatever you have in your fridge, that's why I remained sort of... you know, deliberately generic. Okay, so I, I was wondering, were you being diplomatic or was it a, you know, thought-out policy? So you're pretty much saying it was thought out to make the book for everyone. Yes, definitely, mm-hmm. unquestionably. Okay, okay. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back uh, very soon on Cutting the Curd with Laura Worland. The song is called Firestorm Decline by Jen Jaden and the Green Stone, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Cutting the Curd with Laura Worlin, talking about her book, Mac and Cheese, Please, and other cheese-related topics. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing fine. I was just thinking about, you know, your last question, and I was thinking about how, um, it, you know, sort of internally for me, it's always a bit of a dilemma to try to figure out um, who I should be talking to or who I want to be talking to when it comes to uh, cheeses in recipes, because you know, a huge part of what I do is educate people about cheeses and mostly American cheeses, but others too. And, and, uh, and so on one hand, I don't want to, I haven't wanted to dumb down what I do, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, I have wanted to do just that because I feel like if we just keep talking about, you know, named cheeses that are, that, that we all know in the cheese world, but that others don't, then we're going to keep it just sort of a talk amongst ourselves instead of, you know, reaching a larger group of people mm-hmm. that might be interested in these cheeses but don't know about them. And, and so I feel like, you know, I try to provide gateway books into cheese, and hopefully then that will um, mm-hmm. encourage them to explore further. Right, right. And I, I can remember from working behind the counter at Murray's, 
selling people expensive cheese, they're not going to generally use it in recipes, though that may be changing too. And I think my, my use of good cheese has changed through the years. I'm more inclined to throw an expensive cheese into a recipe now than I used to. Yeah, absolutely. I am too. I am too. But mm-hmm. that's us. And, you know, <laughs> and there's a whole other world out there. Right. What would, you, would it put you on the spot too much if I asked you if you were cooking mac and cheese for a bunch of your foodiest friends, what would you put in it? Well, in terms of cheeses, the ones that I would use would be, uh, I mean, not all in one mac and cheese, but, but, the, but generally my go-to cheeses for mac and cheese, if I'm, if I'm being cheesist, is, um, is Italian fontina, because I love how mm-hmm. it melts, mm-hmm. and I like, um, and I love using Comte mm-hmm. uh, for the same reason, but it's a different kind of a, of, of a flavor, certainly, than fontina, mm-hmm. and, uh, but melts, you know, just as well. Basically, any cheeses that are made in the mountains of, of, of Switzerland, most mm-hmm. of them anyway, melt really well. Mm-hmm. I like all those. And then, um, but it also depends what kind of result I'm looking for because, you know, those are the, the sort of traditional melting cheeses, but then there are the creamy cheeses. So one of the cheeses I use a lot is, um, is Rogue Creamery's Smoky Blue. Ah. Because what that does in a mac and cheese, you know, it's a smoked blue cheese for anybody that doesn't know. And what it does is it creates a bacony flavor in a mac and cheese, but, of course, there's no bacon. So ah. it's great for vegetarians. Oh, that's a great trick. Well, I have a recipe for it, and in the mac and cheese book, it's smoky blue leeks and hazelnuts. And mm-hmm. I included the hazelnuts because those two are Oregon-made, just as the cheese is. Uh-huh. And I wanted to, and, and it all works together very nicely. But then I have mozzarella in there too to kind of. I, I need. I always want to have a sort of a gooey mm-hmm. uh, cheese as well as one that's creamy in a mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I'll use, I mean, I, any cheese will work in a mac and cheese, mm-hmm. it's a, it, but it's a question of how, what you want it to do. Like a pecorino or parmigiano will work, but only, really only on top, uh-huh. you know, as to, for, for crunch and for cheesiness, and, right. but not for melting, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. properties. Okay. Um, I have some questions also on the state of American cheese as we head into the 30th American Cheese Society meeting in Madison next week. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how many meetings you have been to. Do you know? Yeah, this will be my wait. If I can do the math, actually, this will be my fifteenth. Oh wow! So you're you're you've been there half the time. I guess I have. <laughs> I didn't even look at it that way till you just asked. Yeah, that's great. Do you? Um, is it your favorite week of the year? Like so many other cheese people. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, the Festival of Cheese alone. My first, uh, my first conference was in Madison. That was in 1998. Oh. And and I was a newbie. I hadn't written any books yet. I was exploring. Really, I wanted to write my first book. And uh-huh. and I went there, and there were about 300 cheeses for tasting at the festival. And I think I must have tasted all 300. But um, <laughs> now you can't and do most that. Most of them were bad. What? <laughs> now you can't do that. There's no way you can taste all the cheeses no, at the festival. 1,700 cheeses or something like that. But I. Still, so look forward to the festival because I always learn about new cheeses that I haven't heard of there, and I, uh, you know, I'm just much more careful about how I navigate that yeah. because you know it's hard to do. But yes, it's a very exciting week. There's a lot of there. There are great seminars that are being held. As I said, I, I learn at these every every time I go, and you know, the more you learn, the more there is to learn. It seems like in cheese mm-hmm. and. Uh, and the and that this week the conference week really brings that home in the very best way. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
Um, now, if you can go back to when you were first writing your first book on the new American cheesemaker, or when it was just an idea, uh, what did you expect to happen with American cheese when you were first researching those cheesemakers? Well, let me back up. When I was in TV news, my job, I was called the assignment manager, mm-hmm. and what my job was was to figure out what to cover for the news, basically to predict what was going to be important by 5 o'clock you know, that evening. Okay. And so I had kind of um, a, a, you know, an ear or an eye or both for what was going to become something mm-hmm. uh, in a way. Predicting trends. And, well, in a way, yeah, mm-hmm. and and so that definitely informed, you know, my desire to write a book. Not my desire to write the book, but why? But my my reason for wanting to write the book. I, I knew that um, that that we were on the verge of something. I just could feel it with absolutely no basis for for saying that. It was mm-hmm. just a gut feeling, and and part of what informed that is that I, at the time I lived in Berkeley and I. I shopped at a place called the Pasta Shop, which mm-hmm. I'm sure many of our listeners, your listeners, know, right. uh, in in uh, Oakland, and it's uh, you know it's a fantastic cheese shop. And I remember seeing a cheese from Colorado, and I thought Colorado cheese, wow, you know. And and in the meantime, at the San Francisco Farmers Market that I went to almost every week, there were cheesemakers like Cowgirl Creamery and mm-hmm. Bellwood Farms and Redwood Hill, and and I made a beeline to those tables every mm-hmm. t- every week because I wanted to taste their cheeses. I wanted to talk to the cheesemakers and all mm-hmm. of that. So, so I I guess um, you had sensed something was going on. I did, and I and in a way, I I also even if I didn't sense that, I didn't. In a way, I didn't care because <laughs> all I knew was that. I, I just I had to write about these cheesemakers mm-hmm. that were my heroes. They mm-hmm. just were. Hmm. Now, were and, you had you decided to leave TV news and become a yeah. writer? And you yes. just and cheese was your first topic. Actually, it wasn't my first topic. I I, I left to become a food writer, and uh, and I wrote an article. Uh, my, my very first article was published in in Self magazine, and it was on exotic root vegetables. Oh, okay. And, uh, but then I went to my first conference at the um, International Association of Culinary Professionals, the IACP, mm-hmm. and there they have cookbook awards. And I was sitting in the auditorium, a bit forlorn, you know, surrounded by a bunch of people I didn't know who were all in the food industry. And I was very inspired, and I thought, well, if I were to write a book, what would it be about? And I, I answered that question in about a, a nanosecond. I mm. knew it was cheese. Mm-hmm. And then in the next four seconds, I knew it was American cheese. And I kid you not, there was no turning back. That was it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Has, what has surprised you either about your cheese career or your writing career or the cheese world? What has surprised you? Wow. Well, um, I guess, it, gee, what has surprised me? In a way... I, I, I'm, not, I'm not so surprised by anything. I mean, in terms of, I mean, no, I did not set out to write six books on cheese. That's for sure. So, mm-hmm. so personally, um, you know, I, I, I didn't. I, I set out to write my first book. I didn't think beyond that, and and so everything that has happened since has really just been sort of uh, organic, I, I would say, on my part. But also, um, luckily, you know, in keeping in keeping with what has happened with the interest and growth of, of cheese in this country. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very lucky that I got, you know, that I happened to... You got in on the ground to, floor. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so so for me, that's kind of, you know, it's been a, it, definitely it's all been a surprise. Even writing a book in the first place was sort of a surprise because uh-huh. I didn't set out to be an author. But, 
anyway, but in terms of, of American cheese, or you know, as a as a whole, um, I guess what what has been interesting or surprising maybe is the the speed at which it has changed mm-hmm. and grown. And because when I was first writing about cheese, everything was called cheddar or Gruyere. It was you know they were cheeses for the most part anyway named for the European you know. And mm-hmm. antecedents and to those cheeses, and uh, and then little by little, you know, cheesemakers have been naming cheeses for their for whatever they wanted to name them mm-hmm. for, and so that has been um, that's been a wonderful trend to see because back back when everything was named the same thing, uh, I felt like it worked against American cheese mm-hmm. because the, the inevitable comparisons um, and they were and they were being too derivative. They were sort of not striking out on their own. Well, not only that, their cheeses didn't compare, right. frankly. Right. You know, they just weren't that good mm-hmm. and in comparison to the original. So so there was that. And then, uh, but what has been really interesting to me is watching the, the, the growth of uh, cheese making in places where you wouldn't expect it. Mm-hmm. And, and also, so that would be, for me, that would be the South. I, I think that's just been really amazing to watch these fantastic cheeses coming out of places like Tennessee and North Carolina and Texas and Georgia and Virginia that, you know, kind of unlikely, or it would seem to me, Mm -hmm. unlikely places for cheese. But then what has also maybe been most surprising is to see what's happened primarily in Wisconsin and in California, which are both traditionally dairy, well, Wisconsin, of course, is a dairy state, and California, Northern California, has traditionally been, you know, dairy land also in, in Marin and Sonoma counties. And um, but but they sort of they they had their their kind of I don't know, strong time periods of time, but then they kind of went uh, they plateaued. And now Marin and Sonoma County there is is our homes to uh, fantastic new cheeses and cheesemakers. And then Wisconsin, uh, what it has done, I I guess I never expected for it to um, be able to sort of foster the the growth of of the industry in a modern way, mm-hmm. where you you know where you have all these fantastic farmstead cheeses and cheesemakers doing things that are not traditional in Wisconsin, and yet are being embraced within Wisconsin. And I, I just think that that has been really fun to see. And of course, we are all we are, we cheese lovers are all the beneficiaries mm-hmm. of these innovations and growth and kind of going back to their roots, but in a modern way. I think that's what's exciting about having the uh, meeting in Madison this year. Absolutely. That there's, um, you know, there's just a, a lot more, I guess, farms that are artisanal uh, cheeses that have come out of Wisconsin, where we used to think of it as sort of a big cheese state. Now it's both. It's both a little yeah. cheese state and a big cheese state, and they're, right. I think they're quite friendly. Yes, yes. No, that's exactly, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and, 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 and because of that, I think that they're setting a very good example uh, for what else can happen, you know, pretty much anywhere. And, and, in fact, I would say that, you know, to go back to your, your question about the, the changes or surprises, I guess one of the things that's been surprising to me in a good way has been to see how many people who never had um, experience on a farm 
are, you know, moving to farms and, and because of cheese. Mm-hmm. They want to, you know, they want to make cheese. And I think when, sometimes when they get there, they wonder what they were doing, right. <laughs> making that decision. But what that means, in good ways and in bad, actually, uh, is that they, to some degree, are helping to raise the bar on the quality of cheese. And, 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 I, and that's a good thing, but they're not the only ones, of course. The people that have no money are doing the same thing. But, uh, but also, the bad part is that, um, for me anyway, is that sometimes I think that the people that have money, uh, do it because they think it's kind of cool and, you know, and, and I, and I'm not sure that they bring soul into it. And, mm-hmm. and what happens is that they, I don't know, they're just kind of sanitized operations. Their cheeses are very predictable, but not necessarily in the best way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that is something that, um, I, you know, I, I don't love seeing. Right. But you take the good with the bad. Right. And I think there's a lot of um, snobbism in the cheese world about where people fall on that spectrum. <laughs> well, <laughs> y- there is. You know, one of the things that's always been troubling to me is that, and and you can see this in the sort of trajectory of my books, is that uh, what I was saying before, I do feel like cheese can be a very sort of a classist kind of a thing, mm-hmm. a kind of, you know, kind of a food. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you know, should everybody in the world be able to eat cheese? I mean, you would certainly think that yeah. when you go to you know, when you go to France, right. it does, you know, you can buy a, a wheel of Vacheron Mont d'Or for about, you know, $10, and mm-hmm. here it's about 30 Right. And it isn't just because it's, you know, imported. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it's it's what it's the premium. It, it's the cost of doing business here. Right. There are a lot of reasons mm-hmm. for it. There, there isn't just one. But, well, it seems yeah. like peasant food. It, I mean, it really seems mm-hmm. like hearty peasant food that you should just be, you know, having a chunk of at the table. Unfortunately, I see our time is up. We've been chatting so much. Um, I want to thank you. Um, for coming on the show. Laura Worland, thank you very much. And I hope everyone goes out and tries your mac and cheese, please, book. And we can all have mac and cheese for uh, <laughs> for weeks. Uh, well, and, thank you, Diane. And this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. You can listen to a podcast on iTunes, and you can find us on heritageradionetwork.org. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.